Mr. Cameron, who's signaled his resignation but has not yet gone, will go down in history as the Conservative leader who, first of all, destroyed the European Union. I mean, we have left the major bloc in the world economy, and he's going to destroy the United Kingdom as well, because as you suggested in the introduction, Scotland will leave. Today's episode is brought to you by Casper, where you can get an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. Get $50 off your order when you go to casper.com best and use the offer code best at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, On the Media, The Tom Hartman Program, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, and Democracy Now!, The United Kingdom, birthplace of the Beatles, and yet very much the world's Ringo. Now, on Thursday, the UK faces an in-out referendum on whether to leave the European Union. And incidentally, an in-out referendum is also what most English people call sex. I say, that was a jolly good in-out referendum, Priscilla. Capital stuff, old girl. Simply capital. You may not have heard about this referendum unless you watch financial networks, where it's usually referred to by a catchy name. There's a lot of fear out there in the marketplace about the Brexit vote that's coming up. Brexit uh, fear is gaining traction. A new survey this morning focuses on Brexit fears. Brexit is one of the major concerns in the market at the moment. I think that the scariest thing about Brexit is the name Brexit. Because it's unknown. I mean, it's like, wow, Brexit. Whoa, be afraid. Conjuring Brexit. Okay, calm down. Brexit doesn't sound scary. It just sounds like a shitty granola bar you buy at the airport. Hey, this tastes like a preserved owl pellet. F*** it, I'm going to Cinnabon. You push me into it. And I know, I know, if you are watching this outside the UK, you're probably thinking, why should I care about what Britain does with the EU? Honestly, as long as those crooked-toothed scone goblins keep shooting out royal babies in episodes of Doctor Who, I don't give a tally-ho f*** what happens there. And fair enough. Fair enough, but a Brexit or British exit could have wide-ranging implications both for the UK and the world's economy. And first, it might help to understand what the European Union actually is. The idea for it came after the Second World War, when there was understandably a desire to keep the continent from tearing itself apart yet again. And it has since evolved into an economic union of 28 countries whose citizens can trade and move freely across borders and who negotiate international agreements as a bloc. But... Despite being a member, Britain has always had an arm's-length relationship with the EU. For instance, it doesn't use the euro, uh, and some British politicians have been openly hostile right to the face of EU officials. I don't want to be rude, but you have the charisma of a damp rag and the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk. And the question that I want to ask, that we're all going to ask, is who are you? I've never heard of you. Nobody in Europe had ever heard of you. That is painful to watch. And not just because all of those insults are things people in the UK have said about me. And, and look, look, the EU is not perfect. It's large, confounding and relentlessly bureaucratic. Think of it like Gerard Depardieu. It's an unwieldy European body that's a source of great bewilderment. But Britain leaving it would be a huge destabilising decision. So you would expect the Brexit camp to have some pretty solid arguments. Unfortunately, many of them are bullshit. One of the most popular involves the financial contributions that Britain makes to the EU. 
We've got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take back control in this country of huge sums of money that we send every year to Brussels, about £350 million a week we do not control. That is former London Mayor Boris Johnson, a man with both the look and the economic insight of Bam Bam from the Flintstones. <laughs> he, he has even been driven around in a giant red bus for the last month with the words, we send the EU £350 million a week written on the side. But that number has been thoroughly debunked. It's actually about £190 million pounds a week when you consider a rebate the UK receives and other money that the EU sends back. On top of which, if Britain does leave the EU, it may have to spend close to that amount just to access the common market. So what the bus should really say is, we actually send the EU £190 million pounds a week, which is a proportion of our GDP makes sound fiscal sense. In fact, considering the benefits we reap in return, oh shit, we're running out of bus. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs> Now, what, one of the other uh, main talking points from pro-Brexit campaigners has been the EU's onerous regulations. It's even a centrepiece of the feature-length pro-Brexit movie, Brexit the Movie. Here is regulated EU man waking from his regulated slumber to start his regulated day. You wouldn't think you'd need a law for pillowcases, but the EU has five. But that's nothing. The pillow inside is subject to 109 different EU laws. But is it, though? Because we blew up that frame and then went looking through each of the pillow regulations they feature. And the problem is, most have nothing to do with actual pillows. For instance, this one is a classification of a type of breakfast cereal that comes in pillow shapes. This one is related to a merger between two auto park companies that included the phrase pillow ball joints. And finally, this one uses the word pillow in reference to this weird foot pump thing, which is supposedly for inflating air mattresses, but is clearly a sex doll for a platypus. It's so obvious what that actually is. So, it seems... The benefits of leaving may be overstated, and there is many, there's a great many people warning about a real downside. President Obama is against Britain leaving, so is China, so is Japan, so is India, and the EU itself. In fact, one Austrian politician tried to convince Britain not to leave with a poem. The Brexit is, to put it simple, not like an ordinary pimple. You take some cream, you put it on, a few days later, it is gone. It is a complicated matter, more like a novel, not a letter. To understand the story well, you've got to listen. I will tell you what may happen. So sit back and let me wrap it. Cool. I mean, come on, Britain. If a middle-aged Austrian bureaucrat spitting dope half-rhymes in a busy hallway, if he does not win you over, nobody will. But you know what? There's also overwhelming consensus about the damage Britain could do to its economy by leaving. Reports by groups like the British Treasury, the Bank of England, the IMF, the OECD, uh, the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, PricewaterhouseCoopers, Oxford Economics and the Centre for Economic Performance have all predicted that leaving would have a negative effect on the British GDP. And the pro-Brexit camp's response to that has not been great. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people saying, of this country have had organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting people? it consistently wrong. Yes! <laughs> F*** these eggheads with their studies and degrees. I get my economic forecast from Clever Otis, the GDP-predicting horse. <laughs>
and at this point, you may be wondering, if leaving is so universally seen as a bad idea, then who the f*** is in favour of it? Well, let me introduce you to one of the leading groups backing a Brexit, the UK Independence Party, also called UKIP. Uh, their leader is Nigel Farage, that man you saw earlier at the Comedy Central roast of European Council <laughs> President Herman Van Rompuy. UKIP is known for its hardline anti-immigration views, and some of its members have engaged in outright racism. Just look at Robert Blay, a UKIP candidate for Parliament who was suspended after a tabloid paper caught him saying this about arrival of Sri Lankan descent. Your family's only been here since the 70s. You're not British enough to be in our Whoa there. Just hold up. Not British enough to be in our Parliament. He's talking about a British citizen who was born in London and raised in Hampshire. How is that not British enough? Must he literally be a monocled badger named Reginald who lives in a shepherd's pie? Is that the bar of entry to him? And at the local level, UKIP has had councillors like this woman who served on a district council in Kent. I have to watch my tongue because I can be very outspoken. Um, and it goes against the grain. The only people I do have problems with are Negroes. And I don't know why. OK, OK, let's agree it is now official. Not everything sounds smarter in a British accent. It's official now. It is absolutely 100% official. I'm, I know... I know what you heard is horrifying, but at least we can all rest easy knowing that as she speaks, that shelf full of clowns is plotting to carry her away into the night forever. <laughs> but even when UKIP candidates are caught making racist comments, Farage has sometimes stood by them. Look at Kerry Smith, who used a racial slur about Chinese people, a term that I'm not going to use because I'm not a parliamentary candidate for UKIP. But Nigel Farage did not exactly condemn him. If you and your mates are going out for a Chinese, what do you say you're going for? I honestly would not use the word no. Chinese. Would you? A lot of people would. Would um, you? No, but a lot of people would. Oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of people would. Uh, racists, for example. Uh, bigots, idiots, the intolerant. Who am I missing here? Oh, yeah, UKIP voters, them as well. A lot of people would. Now, UKIP argued that a Brexit would enable the UK to significantly reduce immigration preventing both EU citizens from taking British jobs and non-EU citizens from sneaking in to commit terror attacks. And they have not been subtle in their campaign, with toxic posters like this one showing lines of refugees and the headline breaking point. It is hard for me to overstate to you how poisonous things have become in England. Just this week, MP Joe Cox was killed in the street and the man charged for it gave his name in court as death to traitors, freedom for Britain. And in that cauldron, people are being asked to make a major political decision. And incidentally, regarding immigration, even if you believe tightening borders is what Britain needs to do, you should know that opting out of the EU will not necessarily enable Britain to do that. Leaving the EU, does that mean the UK gets control of its borders? Um, it could do. If we were to completely cut ourselves off from the rest of Europe, we could certainly choose to end migration from the EU. But if we want to remain part of the single market, that means accepting free mobility of labour both into and out of the UK. Of course! Because if Britain wants a good trade deal with the EU, it's probably going to have to abide by most of its rules. And the same goes, by the way, for all those hypothetically cumbersome, non-pillow-related pillow regulations. <laughs> 
Because if British companies want to trade with the EU, they also are likely to have to go to have to abide by those rules anyway. So it's not a Brexit so much as it's a bratus quo or a bromeostasis or a conscious unbrappling. Now you've got some diamonds and you will have some others but you better watch your step girl or start living with your mother so don't play with me cause you're playing with fire so don't you play with me cause you're playing with fire the fallout from brexit was marked by plunging Plunging markets, plunging pound, plunging politicians. Among them, Prime Minister David Cameron. He ran on the promise of a referendum on whether to leave the EU, assuming it would lose, and then fell on his own sword. The British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction. Boris Johnson, columnist and ex-mayor of London, led a fire and brimstone campaign for Brexit, and the Brits assumed he'd ride his win to 10 Downing Street. But on Thursday, he bowed out, after his erstwhile ally, Justice Secretary Michael Gove, flatly stated that Boris wasn't up to the job. No, said Gove reluctantly, it had to fall to someone else. To Gove, in fact, poor Boris. My friends, you who have waited faithfully for the punchline of this speech, that having consulted colleagues and in view of the circumstances of Parliament, I have concluded that person cannot be me. Now a little more on Johnson. In 1989, after being fired from the Times of London for fabricating a quote, the Daily Telegraph sent him to grey old Brussels to cover the dull old EU. Martin Fletcher, a writer and former foreign correspondent for the Times of London, held a similar post in Brussels a few years later. He said Johnson's work in Brussels really livened things up. He set out from the word go to create a sort of cartoon caricature of Brussels full of scheming Europeans who were creating a super state that was trampling on ancient British liberties, forever foisting ridiculous rules and diktats on the long-suffering British people. One of the headlines his stories generated was Brussels recruits sniffers to ensure Euro manure smells the same? Yes, the first paragraph of which read, the smelly farmyards could become an offence under Brussels' plans to quantify maximum permissible odours. I mean, as far as I can tell, that was made up out of whole cloth. But it's an example of how he portrayed Brussels as meddling in the minutest corners of British life. How about this headline, Italy fails to measure up on condoms? Yeah, the first paragraph of which was, the Italian rubber industry is falling foul of EU rules by making undersized condoms. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) You can see why people read the stories. They just happened to be completely untrue. These were stories that had no basis. There was a kernel of truth in what he said, in the sense that the EU was very bureaucratic, and it did sort of meddle more than it should probably in the uh, affairs of its member states. But beyond that, his stories were a grotesque exaggeration. And why did he write them? First of all, he was writing for The Telegraph, which was the sort of house newspaper of the Eurosceptic. 
politic right at that stage. And secondly, because Boris has always had a somewhat tangential relationship with the truth, you know, there was a lot of Euroscepticism around before Boris went to Brussels. He didn't invent it, but he elevated it to a whole new level. And what happened was other Fleet Street editors who were rather bored with this grey stuff that had been coming out of Brussels up to that point started pressing their own correspondence to match Boris. And so you started getting stories in other tabloids about how the European Union was going to ban double-decker buses or force our fishermen to wear hairnets. I don't make this up. I followed him in 1999. And even on the Times of London, I felt under pressure. We were all under pressure. Not only was there a demand for these preposterous stories, but you couldn't write about the European Union's many achievements. Can you give me an example of a story that you really felt was important but couldn't get in because it didn't fit the template? How the European Union secured the peace in Europe, how it enabled younger generations to live, work, travel anywhere in Europe in a way that my generation could only dream of. I mean, that's a huge advantage, a very important aspect of our relationship with Europe, which never got reported. Actually, we have a lot of allies. We won the argument on competition policy, on creating the single market, on eastward enlargement of the European Union. There are lots of countries that agree with us. You would never know that from reading the British press. Editors in Fleet Street could only see Brussels through a certain prism. And those narratives were so strong that politicians couldn't challenge them. You wrote in your New York Times op-ed that Loughborough University's Center for Research and Communication and Culture calculated that 82% of newspaper articles about the referendum favored Brexit. Of Britain's national daily newspapers, only three the Financial Times, The Guardian, and the London Times favoured Remain. The rest favoured Brexit. That included the Telegraph, the biggest broadsheet, the Daily Mail, the biggest mid-market paper, and the Sun, which is the biggest tabloid. And when I say favoured Brexit, all balance, all sense of fairness, all sense of truth, frankly, went out of the window. It was a thoroughly mendacious campaign, whipping up anti-immigrant sentiment. So people say that newspapers don't matter, but I think they were critical in this referendum. The margin between the Leave and Remain camps was 1.2 something million votes. In other words, if just a little over 600,000 voters had voted the other way, then we would still be staying in the European Union. Mm -hmm. And according to one opinion poll that was carried out in the wake of the Brexit decision, more than a million people regret their vote to leave the European Union. So that would have swung the vote the other way. Look, the papers perpetrated four big lies. The first was that we send £350 million a week to the European Union. The real figure is about £120 million. Secondly, that Turkey was about to join the European Union and therefore millions and millions of Turks were going to be invading Britain. Any sober observer of the situation would be amazed if Turkey joins in the next 20 or 30 years. I mean, it's becoming increasingly authoritarian. Its chances of joining are, are minimal. Thirdly, that we could somehow retain access to the single market of 500 million people without 
also giving freedom of movement to European Union workers. I mean, that just isn't going to happen. And fourthly, that our social services were being stretched to breaking point by all the immigrants who come to this country. Actually, most of our social services, especially the National Health Service, is kept going by immigrants. Because they pay taxes? No, because so many are working in the NHS. Uh-huh. Without immigrants, the NHS would assuredly collapse. In the wake of all the criticism of the way the Brexit campaigns were covered in the last week, has there been uh, any kind of mea culpa from outlets like the Daily Mail in the summer? <laughs> no. The Prime Minister had resigned. The pound had plummeted. Global stock markets had plunged. The UK had begun to unravel. And the only people who were celebrating were Trump and Putin and ISIS and Marie Le Pen in France. So what was the headline in the Daily Mail? It was Take a Bow Britain. And in the Daily Telegraph, it was Birth of a New Britain, as if none of the calamities that had begun to befall us had happened at all. The other thing you're hearing now is, well, both sides were telling untruths. Ah. The Leave camp says, well, the Remainers were telling untruths, and they were accusing them of what was glibly described as Project Fear. The Remain camp couldn't trumpet the virtues of the EU because the EU is unpopular. Even I think the EU is badly in need of reform. So not being able to talk positively about the EU, they had to rely on issuing warnings about what happened if we came out of the EU. So it was, in a sense, based on fear. But the only thing I would say is that all the dire predictions of what would happen if we voted for Brexit are coming true as we speak. I When we fought the, uh, the American Revolution against the British and operated under the Articles of Confederation, the war was over, we were an independent country. We went through three, as I recall, presidents, and this was before the Constitution, this was before 1787, um, and we were basically 13 states that were operating as functionally independent nations with a trade agreement among them that was called the Articles of Confederation. And those 13 states had very different customs, for example. I, the principal cleavage was slavery in the South and, and anti-slavery in the North, but that wasn't the only one. And then, then you know, the North was more industrialized, the South was, was more agrarian, et cetera, et cetera. And we couldn't make it work. We decided we've got to do one of two things. Either these 13 states become 13 independent colonies into 13 independent countries. And there was actually a serious discussion about that happening. And, uh, you know, around a couple of very substantial issues that almost happened. Or we're going to become a federal republic. And it may well be that New York State is going to subsidize Georgia forever. But they're both going to become part of the republic, so it doesn't matter. It'll become invisible. So, so under the Articles of Confederation, 
It was more of a situation sort of like the EU, where, you know, if one state was failing, the other states didn't have to bail them out. And then that state is in crisis and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was actually happening back then. And it was one of the reasons it had to do with mostly debt um, and, and script that went back to the Revolutionary War. But in any case, that was happening. And so, uh, I mean, you either do it all the way or you don't do it at all. And this is the problem that I've always had with the European Union and the Eurozone, for that matter, is that they are not, it's not a federal republic. It's not one country. It's a whole bunch of different countries with different customs and different languages and different ideas of who they are and what their role is in Europe. And perhaps most importantly, some are very, very powerful economically and politically, and some are very poor and weak economically and politically. And they're all thrown into this thing together without any kind of really substantial balancing mechanism that, that in my opinion. And I, I've just, I've been saying from, from day one, I've been saying since the 70s, when they, when they started seriously putting this thing together, this is not going to last. And I've, I've lived in Europe. I lived in Europe for a year. I've probably spent another two years there uh, in, uh, in the course of my life, just, you know, traveling. I've, I spent a lot of time in Europe. And, and I, you know, this was a, a noble experiment. But the problem is in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, when it was a, a liberal progressive experiment to end war, it got co-opted in the 70s and 80s by the Thatcherites, by the neoliberals, by the, by the uh, you know, whatever you want to call them. And it has become something that doesn't, frankly, in my opinion, doesn't work. And you're seeing it come, come apart around the edges. It's only working basically for Germany and arguably for France. And I think the I think the whole thing's going down the tubes. And I and I don't think that that is a conservative or a liberal position. I think it's a it's a cold-eyed assessment of the realities of how markets work, economies work, and countries work. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress that is sold directly to consumers, getting rid of all of the extra expense of showroom markups in order to pass those savings right on to their customers. An in-house team of their engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper, which combines springy latex and supportive memory foam for a sleep surface that's got just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine even named it one of the best inventions of 2015, and now that same team has developed an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. And even though Casper is made right here in the U.S., it'll still cost you a lot less than a showroom mattress, which can often be well over $1,500. Casper mattresses start at just $500 for a twin size and only go up to $950 for a king. Plus, they offer free shipping right to your door in an impossibly small box, and your purchase is risk-free because you get to try it out, sleep on it at home for up to 100 days, with an option for a painless return and a complete refund. As a special offer, you can get $50 towards any mattress purchase and support the show by visiting casper.com best and using the offer code BEST at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL linked up on my website, but again, it's casper.com best and use the offer code BEST at checkout. 
brothers and our sisters in many far off lands. There is power in our union. To explain that vote, you really have to go back a little bit historically. You know that we often do that in order to understand how this all came to be. You can go far back, but we don't have the time. So let's go back to the 1970s and 80s. At that time, Britain, rather like the United States, was going through a big change. The leader that epitomized the change there, a woman named Margaret Thatcher, kind of the equivalent there of what Ronald Reagan was here. It was to be the end of the New Deal part of American history, or for that matter, the Labor Party, social democratic period of British history. We were going to roll back the government's intervention in the economy so as to liberate the energies of businesses everywhere. Taxes on business were to be cut, and they were. Workers' wages were to be pressed down, and they were. Unions were to be destroyed or at least weakened, and they were. All of those things that happened in the United States in the 80s and 90s happened also in Great Britain. And it had the same result. It was a promise of a better time, but the actual delivery was better profits for the top 5 or 10%, and an increasingly difficult life for the average British citizen. But there was a lot of hoopla about it, just as there was in the United States, there was in Britain. Okay, we're going to have some difficulties, but don't worry, capitalism is going to explode. Capitalism is going to go very well. Capitalism is going to bring us peace, prosperity, and economic growth. And for a while, it looked like it might. Lots of hyping in the press, lots of promises, lots of people borrowing money for the first time in their lives to live at a standard of living that went up, but only because they were getting deeper into debt. Again, you see the parallel with the United States. Over time, this situation built up a depression, a sadness, a grimness, an anger, and a rage. But the people of Britain, like the people in the United States, didn't know where to put it. They were being told that there was an economic resurgence. There was an economic growth. And if they didn't participate, the strong suggestion was it was their own fault. They should work harder. They should have gone to a different school. They should have, etc., etc. And just like in the United States, as the tension built, slowly... The question was raised, well, what's going wrong? And this made a problem. It made a problem for not just Thatcher and Reagan, but for the people who thought like that, the people who still think like that, who keep saying that the way to get economic well-being is to cut taxes on business, to make the government smaller, to deregulate industry, to do now what they've been doing 5, 10, 20, and 30 years ago, as if the economic troubles we have have no relationship to all of that, as if the collapse of global capitalism in 2008 wasn't in fact a direct result of having loaded people up with debt because you didn't raise their wages the way you once had, that debt could no longer be paid back, the economy crashes, but we're still supposed to pretend that all the policy that led to all of that should be continued as if it had worked for the mass of people, when that's precisely what it didn't do. Yes, it made 5% at the top very wealthy. 
Now, meanwhile, as all of this is unfolding, something real is changing in the economy. And it's very, very important to explain that because therein lies the, the causes of Brexit. Basically, over the last 40 years, billion, at least a billion workers who were not part of global capitalism have become part. I'm talking about the collapse of the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe that brings all of those workers who had been kept out because they were part of the Soviet bloc. They now become people looking for work where they can get it in Western Europe. I'm talking about the Chinese people and the Indian people and the Brazilian people and people all over the world who were brought in to the world capitalist economy through political and other changes. But that had an enormous effect because all those people looking for work in the capitalist center of the economy of the world, North America, Western Europe, and Japan, those people were going to compete with those in the West, in those old centers of capitalism, who had jobs. And when they came to compete, they offered to work for less. So that thousands of corporations left the United States, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, and went to India, China, Brazil, and Eastern Europe, for example. And millions of the people in those countries moved to Britain, France, Germany, and the United States looking for work. It's what you would expect. Now, if there had been planning, if this process had been managed by a collective effort to make it work, well, maybe it might have succeeded. But it wasn't. It was driven by one thing and one thing alone, profit. Western companies said, great, we can make even more money by moving to China. Other Western companies said, great, we can make more money by bringing in foreigners desperate for work, immigrants, and giving them the jobs at lower pay than we used to pay to our own people. Did corporations do it? You betcha. Did it change the economy? You betcha. It made people who work at the top of corporations, people who own shares in those corporations, they made out, if you pardon me, like bandits because they got away with paying lower wages, either to immigrants at home or to foreigners if they moved their companies overseas, and many big corporations did both. So they made out well. But the average American citizen, the average British citizen, and for that matter, the average fill-in-the-blank citizen in North America, Western Europe, and Japan, they didn't do so well. They discovered their wages weren't going up anymore the way they had. Their expectations of a better life in the future were smashed. They were told to borrow money until they had borrowed so much that the banks wouldn't lend them anymore or would demand interest rates that they couldn't afford. They were told that a college education for their kid would require the child to go into Lord knows how much debt. It was a society that was pinching the middle and the bottom more and more. It was only a question of time when this would blow, when the gap between rich and poor would be unsupportable, politically, ideologically, morally. It was only a matter of time before a capitalist system that makes a tiny number of people absurdly rich and everybody else in economic difficulty would be recognized for what it was. That began to happen 
particularly after the crash of 2008, when this capitalist system's breakdown might, you might have thought, might have led people to say, well, let's, uh, let's really change this system or at least control it because it isn't working very well. And that didn't happen. Instead, the very forces that brought the crisis to a head made sure to use public money to bail themselves out and then declare the need for an austerity policy to cut back on government spending for people when they needed it most in order to afford the bailout of the companies and the rich who needed it least. Oh my goodness, no wonder things have gotten hot under the collar. No wonder people are desperate and angry about what's happening to them and what looks like it's going to continue into an indefinite future. Yet Thatcher rides by night, lend an ear, lend an ear. Yet Thatcher rides by night, lend an ear. Yet Thatcher rides by night, your faults I will proclaim. Yet doctrines I must blame, you will hear, you will hear. Yet doctrines I must blame, you will hear. Your privatise away, what is ours, what is ours. You privatise away what is ours You privatise away And then you make us pay I will take it back someday Mark my words, mark my words We'll take it back someday Mark my words Opposition leader Jeremy Corbyn has rejected calls to step down as opposition leader saying now is the time for the party to stand up for its values Our policies on trade, economy and migration will have to change in light of the referendum vote. But that cannot be left to the likes of Johnson, Farage and Gove. Labour will fight to ensure that our agenda is at the heart of the negotiations over withdrawal from the European Union that lie ahead, including the freedom to shape our economy to work for all, maintain social and employment protections that benefit all, and that whoever leads the government is intensely held to account, uh, to democratic account throughout the whole process. Scotland has announced it'll take any steps needed to stay inside the European Union, including possibly holding a second independence referendum. On Sunday, Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, said the country will do whatever it takes to remain in the EU. Meanwhile, Northern Ireland's deputy leader, Martin McGuinness, called Friday for a vote to unite the two sides of the Irish border. Global stock markets have plummeted. More than $2 trillion was wiped off global equity markets on Friday and the biggest daily loss ever. Earlier today, the British pound hit a 31-year low. Meanwhile, Secretary of State John Kerry's headed to Brussels and London to discuss the political and economic upheaval caused by the Brexit vote. To make sense of what's happening, we go now to London, where we're joined by longtime British economics journalist Paul Mason, who's worked at the BBC and Channel 4. His new book is titled Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future. So talk about the fallout from the Brexit vote, Paul, and also why this vote to leave the European Union ever even took place. Well, the vote to leave the European Union took place because uh, repeatedly 25% of British voters were in 
fair elections, that is the uh, proportional representation system, were backing a party that wants to leave the European Union. And this impacted onto the Conservative Party and it made it necessary for David Cameron to take a gamble of having a referendum to bury the issue for a generation. Now, he, he gambled and lost because Cameron wanted to stay in the European Union. 52% of British voters voted to leave. And as a result, Mr Cameron, who's signalled his resignation but has not yet gone, will go down in history as the Conservative leader who who, first of all, destroyed the European Union. I mean, we have left the major block in the world economy, and he's going to destroy the United Kingdom as well, because, as you suggested in the introduction, Scotland will leave. Now, the overwhelming issue behind this vote was migration. And what we had was uh, basically not just the kind of people who might uh, support Glenn Beck and kind of uh, Donald Trump, arguing that migration had gone too far. But as it turns out, many people who are organic and core supporters of the Labour Party, um, the, the, the free migration from East Europe and South Europe into the United Kingdom has brought about three million people over the last 10 years. And it, in many small communities, it, they feel, the, the people who are already here, including many black and Asian people, just said it's too many. And there's no way of stopping it without leaving Europe. That was made very clear to them. This is what tipped the vote. Paul, talk about who voted for leaving and who voted for staying. And also the age. Wasn't it true that um, most yeah. young people voted for staying in the European Union? Sure. 74 percent of young people who voted voted to stay in the European Union. The only problem is we think somewhere between 35 and 45 percent of that age group actually voted, much, much lower than any other age group. The dis dislocation from politics meant that the people for whom this is going to mean the most had the least say. Now, many of them on social media are really angry. They want to there's, there's great support among them, uh, politically, unfortunately, quite naive people uh, to for the idea that Parliament can, can cancel it all, or that we can have a petition that cancels it all. It's not going to be cancelled. It's, it's happened. Now, demographically, it's, let me try and explain this to, to United States readers. If you, London and Scotland voted to remain. Northern Ireland, by a majority, voted to remain. What did all those places have in common? They had a narrative that explains why remaining in Europe, even despite one's criticisms of it, uh, was a good idea. The Scots had a left cultural nationalism. London is a buzzing multicultural city. For Northern Ireland, it was, by and large, the Catholic population which voted to stay in because they see staying in Europe as a link to Southern Ireland, which they, you know, some of them would ultimately they like to join. Who voted to, to leave was small towns. Small towns were the bedrock. Small towns where the private sector uh, provides mainly low-skill, low-wage jobs, and where there's not so much unemployment, but a high degree of sort of uh, drabness and lack, you know, there's, there's no cinemas, there's no stores other than the basic kind of low rent stores. And, and small town Britain just attributed this basically the victimhood of neoliberalism to i think the wrong uh, the wrong cause they 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 saw migration as the as the key thing that had changed in their lives in the last 10 years and they said it uh, because some evidence points to it at the low end of the uh, of the economic scale migration is hitting our wages it's causing stress to our public services we can't uh, rent those there's, there's a there's a big shortage of rented accommodation and, pe and when people like me said but the real issue here is capitalism the real issue here is neoliberalism they would say well okay but stopping migration still makes it better 
And ultimately, we the shock on the night was that some university towns, you know, some some towns that are that are high public service uh, employment, therefore quite high unionization, maybe 30% black or Asian in ethnic mix, and with a couple of universities, um, voted to leave. So Nottingham, Newport in Wales, uh, Sheffield, where I went to university. These are kind of places like Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they still voted to leave. Long-time listeners may remember that each year I raise money for climate change organizations such as 350.org through Climate Ride by pledging to ride my bike some super long distance in exchange for donations. This year, I'm riding 300 miles from Acadia National Park in Maine down to Boston over a five-day stretch. I've started my training rides and the donations have started to flow, but I've got a ways to go to get to my goal of $5,500. At the same time, I always need to be raising money to run this show, so I've come up with a great two-in-one fundraiser with a special deal for anyone who makes a tax-deductible donation to my climate ride and signs up as a member of the show, contributing as little as six bucks a month. For anyone who contributes at least $25 to my climate ride and signs up as a member, I'm offering free best-of-left t-shirts and hoodies that are not available anywhere to anyone ever except during special fundraisers like this. Plus, members get access to bonus content, that's weekly extended commentaries from me on this or that, sometimes there are bonus clips, sometimes bonus uh, listener voicemails. It's a lot like my regular comments at the end of each episode, but I go a little longer and try to dive a little bit deeper. For details, just go to bestoftheleft.com and click on the big summer fundraiser banner where you will be directed on how to contribute to my climate ride, sign up as a member, and submit your thank you gift t-shirt order. Thanks so much for your support. The Brexit thing and the Trump thing. And how the failure of neoliberalism to replace mercantilism, basically, successfully, to the benefit of the average working person, has, has created um, not only an opportunity for Donald Trump, but an opportunity for many of the racists and bigots around the world, but also an opportunity to, to reinvent society. And the people who should be Stepping into that opportunity are, in it seems to me, uh, rather slow to move, and it's and it's rather surprising. The uh, the the principal media narrative of the people who voted to leave the European Union in Great Britain is that um, they were dumb or stupid or had been lied to or were racist pigs, basically, and. There, there are a number of problems with, with that narrative. Um, Robert Kuttner wrote a, a, a brilliant piece that uh, I saw over at the Huffington Post uh, titled, Why Most Commentaries Missed the Point. He said, when the original institutions that later became the EU were created in the 40s and 50s, you'll recall, I said this last week. I was talking about how, you know, this came out of World War II, the European Union. I mean, let's never have another war on this continent. This god-awful bloody war, actually two of them back-to-back within two generations, World War I, World War II. 
And so anyhow, he writes, when the original institutions that later became the EU were created in the 40s and 50s, the international system was designed on the ashes of the Depression and the war to rebuild an economy of full employment and broad-based prosperity. And the system worked remarkably well. In the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher came to power in Britain and Ronald Reagan in the U.S., and their policies returned to a dog-eat-dog brand of capitalism that benefit elites and hurt ordinary people. By the 1990s, when the European economic community had become a more tightly knit European Union, it too became an agent of neoliberalism. Policies of deregulation ended in the financial collapse of 2008. The austerity cure enforced by the gnomes of Brussels and Frankfurt and Berlin is in many ways worse than the disease. He says, rising mass discontent has failed to dethrone the elites responsible for these policies, but it has resulted in a loss of faith in institutions. And the 1% won the policies, but lost the people. So he says, yeah, the Brits who voted for Brexit got a lot of facts and details wrong, and Britain will probably be worse off as a result. But they did grasp that the, that the larger economic system is serving the elites and is not serving them. And then, you know, he points out the tragedy of this whole thing is that we're now farther away from having basically a progressive European Union than we were before. And I would, you know, I mean, you look at the stuff that has that has, uh, you know, been happening in the EU over the last couple of years and, and in the Eurozone as well. And, and what you see is this, you know, just destruction, basically, of the middle class. This that that Mike Whitney wrote a fascinating piece titled uh, Bastia Brussels, uh, British Voters Reject EU Corporate Slave State. And, uh, you know, quotes a, a number of fascinating. I mean, he's, he, he, this is from uh, Raul Elargy Meyer. He says, nobody seems to understand. It's not about Cameron or Farage or Michael Gove versus Boris Johnson. It's about voting for or against the EU or for or against Junker or Tusk or five. It's not about all that. It's not about, it's about voting to leave or remain in a union that is already dead and preserved only by a zombie state. He says, the Brexit referendum represents a fundamental rejection of austerity for working people and subsidies for the markets. And this, the subsidies for the markets that he's talking about are quantitative easing. These zero interest rate policies that are being pursued both by the Fed in the United States and by the European Central Bank they're there right now. The European Central Bank, to the tune of eighty billion dollars a month, is buying corporate bonds. They're propping up corrupt corporations. Well, here's here's what he says. He says it's an indictment of the destructive policies that have thrust a broad swath of Southern Europe into a permanent depression, while bankers in Europe and Paris make out like bandits. Even now, the loathsome European Central Bank continues to run up massive debts. The ECB QE is eighty billion dollars a month just to line the pockets of corporate CEOs who offload their toxic bonds with the clear intention of using the money to buy back their own shares, further enriching themselves and their swinish shareholders at the expense of ordinary investors. This Ponzi ripoff is what passes for economic policy in the EU. Brexit threatens to put an end to this huckster's swindle. And then, you know, he's, he gets into some quotes. And Glenn, Glenn Greenwald uh, wrote a, just a brilliant piece over at uh, The Intercept that I would refer you to talking about how, you know, it, it, well, he, he quotes Vincent Bevins, Vincent Bevins from the uh, LA Times, who says both Brexit and Trumpism are the very, very wrong answers 
to legitimate questions that urban elites have refused to ask for 30 years. Since the 1980s, the elites in rich countries have overplayed their hand, taking all the gains to themselves and just covered their ears when anyone else talks. And now they're watching in horror as voters revolt. He writes, the arrogance of neoliberal elites in constructing a politics designed to sideline and work around democracy while leaving democracy formally intact. And this, you know, so what we have to do is reimagine an economy. How do you create, how do you, do we either go back to a manufacturing economy, which is what um, some folks in Europe are calling for. It's certainly uh, arguably what, what was at the core of the Sanders campaign and frankly is at the core of the Trump campaign um, here in the United States right now. And, and, and I think Hillary Clinton this morning, she, uh, in her speech, she said, we're going to start making things in the United States again. So I think everybody gets it. That that's one one option. We can just say, okay, these last 20, 30 years of neoliberalism have not worked. The McDonald's and, and, and Walmart jobs really didn't replace General Motors jobs. And we've got to figure out a way to get back to a manufacturing based economy. Or do we do something else altogether? Do we go with a co-op based economy? Do we go with a guaranteed minimum income? Do we figure out other ways to distribute the wealth of our society? But these are really serious questions that nobody is having conversations about. Call up the craftsman, bring me the draftsman, build me a path from cradle to grave, and I'll give my consent to any government that does not deny a man a living wage. Go find the young men. Fights again, bring up the banners from the days gone by. Sweet moderation, heart of this nation, desert us not, we are between the wars. All of this was an expression of the anger of the British people. David Cameron, the conservative leader of Britain, who has been imposing austerity on the British people, making the average British people by losing wages and losing job security and losing government programs, pay the cost of the government of England bailing out their businesses in the crash of 2008. This prime minister, David Cameron, was beginning to feel the heat the last two or three years, of the growing anger of the British people about the very policies he, like his predecessors, was imposing on them. So he came up with a clever idea, he thought. He would distract everybody for a year by having a public referendum on whether Britain stays in the EU or not. He had no question in his mind that the British would stay. He knew that the financiers of London, who make a bundle of money off of their being the dominant financial player in Europe, would make sure to give the money to convince the British people with whatever arguments they needed that they should stay in the European Union. Meanwhile, everybody would be focused on this big referendum, which indeed happened, and so there wouldn't be as much attention to the suffering of the mass of the British people under the economic policies of Mr. Cameron. What he never counted on, what he did not foresee, was that the mass of people would be so angry at what is happening to them that they would turn on him as the prime minister, holding him responsible, together with the whole elite of British society, for imposing this suffering without end on them, 
that they would vote to leave the European Union, mostly as a statement of, we don't want you, and we don't want the people like you to keep doing to us what you're doing. It was the anger and the bitterness, and it was a revelation, because it showed that the elites that run England are so out of touch with the people whose lives they've made difficult to make themselves even richer. They're so out of touch, they couldn't even monitor or control this vote that they thought from the beginning they had all sewed up. This should strike an American audience as familiar. It's like the leadership, the elite that controls the Republican Party, thinking that Donald Trump was some distractive clown at the beginning of the campaign who they didn't have to worry about, only to discover that they're so out of touch with the average people and the anger they feel about what is happening to their lives that precisely because they made fun of Donald Trump, masses of people decided to support Mr. Trump as a way of affirming their own dissatisfaction. And ditto for the leadership of the Democratic Party, which had no clue that Bernie Sanders from Vermont could generate the millions of votes, the massive support. They too out of touch. They are two parts of a leadership in the United States as surprised by the mass anger and resentment they have generated and now encountered as Mr. Cameron and all those who favored Britain to remain in the EU discovered the day after Brexit was voted when the people said no to all of them. Where does it all go? And that's really important. Where does it go? Well, this is not a a vote that was meant to go anywhere. This is a vote of protest. Brexit is a statement of anger and rage. It's a little bit like being working in a place where you have a boss and the boss is disgusting and the boss is crude and the boss is intrusive in your life. And so one day on your way out of the uh, of the workplace, you let the air out of the tires in his car. Is that a plan for what's going to solve your problem? No. Is it an act that will change your suffering? No. It is a reflection of your anger. It is a reflection of your bitterness. It is a reflection of a a barely contained rage. But it isn't a solution to your problem. Your boss is going to treat you tomorrow more or less the way he did up until this. He'll just be maybe a bit angrier because he had to solve a problem of flat tires on his car. The British, of course, are wondering where all this goes now. They've expressed their anger, but they're going to recognize, and many of them already do, that this really doesn't change very much. The companies that were squeezing British working people before are going to continue to do it. The financial center of London is going to take care of itself and let Britain go where it will. They haven't dealt with the underlying economic problems. Even if they push three or four hundred thousand immigrant workers in England out which is one thing they may do, if they act out their hostility to immigrants, that's not going to change much in England either. If it actually happens and you drive those people out, and if as a result wages go up in England, because there will be fewer workers available, guess what corporations will do in the face of rising British wages? They'll leave. 
they'll move production to where the wages haven't gone up, which will be in much of the rest of the world. So you're not going to solve the problems of capitalism in its situation today by these actions. And that will be understood by the working class sooner, perhaps, than we think. The most important effect all over Europe, people who feel angry about what's going on now have a model to follow. They have demands for referendum already happening in other countries. Scotland, which wanted to stay in the European Union, is thinking of breaking away. The United Kingdom is going to become the disunited kingdom pretty soon. The Irish are thinking about it in Northern Ireland as well. Marina Le Pen, the right-wing force in France, has already demanded a similar referendum so that the French people can express themselves because she hopes they'll do more or less the same. So you've unleashed by this the disruption, but it's not a disruption of ignorant people or angry people merely. This is a disruption best understood as the coming to fruition of an economic change in the 1970s that was touted as deregulation and liberating capitalist ingenuity and freedom for the market, yeah, here's the bottom line. It produced the second worst collapse of capitalism in its history in 2008. And it is now producing the weirdest, strangest, bitterest internal divisions that Europe and the United States have seen in decades. Capitalism is a system of severe, profound contradictions, and like those proverbial chickens, they're coming home to roost. That's what Brexit is all about. We just heard clips featuring John Oliver on Last Week Tonight describing the lay of the land just before the Brexit vote, on the media examined the British press and its Eurosceptic tendencies, Tom Hartman made the case that the Brexit vote goes far beyond being a left-right issue, next was part one of Richard Wolff's explanation of the economic underpinnings of the EU as well as global economic forces, Democracy Now! spoke with Paul Mason to make sense of the growing political and economic crisis in the UK. Tom Hartman drew some parallels between Brexit and support for Trump in the U.S. and demonstrates that both movements are the wrong answers to very legitimate questions. And finally, we just heard part two of Richard Wolff's thoughts on the Brexit vote and what it all means. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Good evening. Best of the left. I'm reporting to you from the currently United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And what a fun little time we've been through. We woke up Friday morning, a very different nation. Most of us were just glad it was over. We had seen so much posted during the Brexit campaign from both sides, from the Remain and the Leave camp, some of which was dishonest from both sides, most of it was just incredibly partisan, and I understand why from both 
sides. But far too often, we tried to make the politics of fear the way we talked about why we should stay in and why we should leave. We tried to get fear of immigrants or fear of the economic unknown. And now we face the unknown. We don't really know where we're going to go from here. And that's what I prefer to think of it as. I don't like to think of it as us detaching. I like to think of it as we've taken a step into the unknown. We have voted voted for radical change, and now, now it's up to us as to what that change means. But mostly, I want to talk to those many people who voted for the first time in the UK. Suddenly, where I live in Oxford, we came out in incredible force to say we wanted to stay. The same in my home city of York. So, I don't know. In my self-fulfilling, liberalizing friends feed on Facebook, exactly how many people I'm going to reach. So I want to say this, and this is what I wrote the morning I found out the results in a bleary haze over breakfast as I was considering what on earth was happening. And it's addressed to those people who voted for the first time, to dear everyone disheartened by this. Please don't be. Now more than ever, we need to have courage. Now more than ever, we need to have strength. For so long, we have simply resorted to fear to make our case. Fear of the man next door. Fear of the unknown. And believe it or not, this makes people scared. And scared people don't always act rationally. So now, as we face the unknown, we cannot be scared. Once one decision is made, but other than that, everything is on the table. The road ahead need not be that which we assume. So, to those who voted for the first time, thank you. Britain managed to come out in such force, and we need you not to be scared. We need you not to be disillusioned, and we need you to stay active and vote again. I do not say those words lightly, and I know that it is not easy. It is the job of those in politics to make this new message hopeful: that we are not just a community of an island, but of a world to inspire the next generation into a country they would want to fight for. Let us not be the generation that assumes it's all about us. What has happened in the past is unchangeable. What happens next is up to us. So please, to everyone out there who wants to engage in a good discussion and who wants to make our country stronger in the context of the world, we need you. I want to close with a statement sent out. By the first female vice chancellor at my great university, University of Oxford, it is worth noting that our century has survived greater disruption than this over the centuries. I am confident that our wonderful cosmopolitan community of scholars and students united in our commitment to education and research will continue to thrive and will emerge even stronger from these extraordinary times. <sighs> We all got emailed. The whole university, pretty much, was against the Leave campaign. But it was this statement which really struck me. Already, this is being put in a historical perspective. That when our vice chancellor talks about greater disruptions my university has faced, 
Those include civil war and plague, which has disrupted a nation. They've included changes of kings and the falling of an empire. There have indeed been many times in the past in history where there have been momentous events. What we emerge as? And how we emerge with the great loss of funding that many areas of my university are now about to exhibit? With the great loss of students and the loss of diversity? How we emerge? That is currently the unknown question. And that is what we need to fight for. Not just as a university. Not just as liberals. But it's citizens. Hi, Jay. This is Jessica calling from New York. Um, I am a school social worker, and I'm calling about one of the episodes that you did a few weeks ago on um, safety in schools and a lot of the problematic issues that have been going on with school safety officers and the school to prison pipeline. So, one of the responses that our school district has had to the school to prison pipeline um, is using something called restorative practices. So a lot of people might have heard about restorative justice, which is an alternative to the traditional legal system. And restorative practices in schools are really aimed to decrease unnecessary suspensions um, and increase really community building within the schools. So um, if we have a conflict um, between students or between student and teacher or whatever it might be, um, we'll often have them come and do what we call a peace circle. Um, there's a talking piece. Um, whoever has the talking piece is invited to speak. All others are invited to listen. Uh, we ask, um, you know, what happened? What were you thinking about at the time? Who was affected by your behavior? What impact this incident had on you? And what do you think that you need to do to make things right? So the wrongdoer has an opportunity to to kind of acknowledge what they did and see how it really impacted a number of people. So parents might be invited to the meeting and parents might talk about, you know, how the incident impacted them. The school safety officer might be invited and um, talk about how that person was impacted. The victim has an opportunity to tell their story and to really be heard and supported and validated in a group. Um, you know, facilitated by a teacher or a social worker or an administrator, whoever. Um, and we've seen a lot of success with this. We know what the statistics say about uh, suspensions leading to dropouts. Um, and we're really concerned about this as a community. And it's been going really well. So I just wanted to add that as um, part of the conversation. Um, I know it's late again since that episode was a while ago, but it's something that comes up a lot, the school to prison pipeline. I know that, um, you know, we do have a school safety officer who is a police officer. He's shared between three schools um, in the same building. Um, so, you know, I haven't really seen this person be utilized, but I know that a lot of the teachers and staff and everyone at the school, you know, still feels that it is helpful to have a school safety officer, um, but it just really has to be the right person and that person has to be in that 
position for the right reasons. And then, you know, that person can really be a part of our, our restorative agenda um, and supporting um, our students so that they feel included in the school rather than, you know, suspension. You're kind of saying you're not a part of the community, you know, get out. Um, we want them to feel included and um, also to make meaningful restoration for what they did wrong. Um, but I just wanted to tell you about restorative just uh, restorative practices and how they are being used successfully in school. So some good news. Thanks. Uh, love the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick update on Climate Ride Fundraiser. It is going excellently. Uh, I think the last time I had a chance to talk to you, I said that we were approaching $500. You know, we're, we're just getting started. We're, we're picking up some steam. And now, just a few days later, we have blown past $1,000. So amazing progress. Huge thanks to everyone who's been shipping in in just the last few days. Very generous contributions from Jonathan, Meredith, Charlie, Diana, Scott, David, Flair, Robert, Laurel, Anonymous, Alex, Travis, Milda, and Catherine. So everything's going well. If we can keep up a pace like that, we are going to blow past our uh, our goal of $5,500 in no time. And uh, another thing about this year's climate ride I want to tell you about, I, I'm sort of particularly excited about this one this year um, because something very different is happening, and that is that my brother is going to be joining me on this ride for the first time. Now, I know I don't really mention that I have a brother very often. It just doesn't come up. It's not very relevant, but I do. And he's actually 10 years older than me. So, I mean, you can imagine I was a kid and he was like the guy I looked up to. And when he got into cycling in his maybe late teens or early 20s, uh, I sort of picked up on that, and he was the one who introduced me into cy- cycling in the first place. You know, I-, I inherited one of his first bikes. I inherited some old cycling jerseys. I think I even inherited some of those tight, you know, stretchy padded pants. And in my teen years, that's how I got my start cycling. And, and so, in a very real way, my brother Sean is the person who set me on this course to now be part of Climate Ride and, and fundraising the way I am. So I'm very excited that this year I, I asked him if he could make it, if he had the time off or, or could swing it. He said he could if I could help him fundraise. Because the thing is, I got this nice show and a whole lot of you, all of my friends that I can reach out to to help fundraise. Sean's in a little bit of a different category. He's a physical therapist and he is at least as introverted as I am. So he might have like a dozen people he could reach out to. And so I think very legitimately, he was like, I don't know if I can raise the amount of money you have to raise in order to do the climate ride. I think you have to raise something like twenty seven dollars or $2,800 to be allowed in. You know, they just have to raise a certain amount to make it worth their while. And so he's like, I don't know if I can raise that much. I was like, okay, no big deal. I can help you raise it. So my fundraising goal has been the same. I've been saying it all along, $5,500. The only weird quirk in how this is going to work is that's that's the goal for team best of the left. 
So if you go and you click on my uh, fundraising link and it takes you to someone named Sean's page, he's on team best of left, but you're like, oh, that's not Jay. What's this all about? Just know that that's my brother and I'm helping him fundraise. So we're going to raise like the first $2,700, $2,800 on my account and then switch it over. And I'm hoping that uh, it's, you know, all the money's going to the same place. I'm not, I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you, uh, that, that you will help in our combined efforts and help donate to uh, my brother's climate ride uh, page. Of course, he's doing his his own fundraising. I, I know he's got some pledges coming in already, but uh, we're going to help him out and put him over the top so that we can go and do this ride together. As I said, I'm very excited about it. And then lastly today, uh, I just want to point out that Netroots Nation is coming up. Uh, if you've been listening for a long time, you may have heard I go to this Netroots Nation conference. Not quite every year. I, I didn't go last year, but but before that, I was going quite often. And the fact that it's a it's a, it's an election year this year, it's going to be more interesting and exciting than usual, I believe. So I'm going to that. That's happening sort of midweek through the weekend of this week. So I won't have a brand new episode for you Friday. There's just no logistical way to try to swing both of those things. Netroots is a very intense <laughs> series of days. Uh, so that's happening. And I, I, I totally know, like, if you've been paying attention to the news to any degree, uh, you know that there are a lot of things going on that need some commentary and I find it very unfortunate that I'm not going to be able to be as timely with my response to the news that's going on. But I'm hoping that giving it a little extra time will make the eventual shows I do about it that much better. More comments will have been made. More news will have been revealed. And I will come back full strength with the best possible show. So... That's all the news, a bunch of logistical stuff going on. Uh, keep the comments coming in, as always. The number again, 202-999-3991. And finally, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad story See you